Today on Blue 58, the NFL Combine is off and running. What should we do with this spectacle of non-football athletics? Then, speaking of athletic, how about a surprise visit from one of the fastest Packers ever? Don Beebe joins the show. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdink. Happy to be with you here for another episode. It is Combine Week. The NFL world is descending on Indianapolis for one of the weirdest sporting events there is. The Combine is not really a sporting event, of course, but it isn't not a sporting event. Everybody is measured, there are scores kept, there are competitors, and yet nobody really wins or loses. But everybody wins or loses. You can win a lot of money by performing well at the Combine. You can also lose a lot of money by how you perform at the Combine. Teams can make really smart decisions based on what they learn at the Combine, and they can also make really dumb ones. The point of this whole podcast, the point of everything that we do at the Power Sweep and at Blue 58, is to make everybody smarter Packers fans. And I think trying to come up with a systematic approach to the Combine is a good effort in service of that idea. So along those lines, here are a few thoughts on the Combine. First, I think we have to acknowledge that the Combine is extremely silly. It is perhaps the most NFL thing there is, even more than the Super Bowl. You've got ridiculous excess. You've got glamour. You've got making a big deal out of things that are definitely not big deals. You've got decisions being made for, at best, spurious and specious reasons. And you've got things that don't matter at all, carrying a lot of weight. What about that just does not scream NFL? Top to bottom, inside out. Everything about that is the NFL. The combine is silly. It's stupid. It's dumb that it exists this way. And yet you kind of understand why. Because secondly, the combine just cannot be ignored. Teams make real decisions based on what happens at the Combine. Like I said, they may make those decisions for very bad reasons, but they are making those decisions based on the Combine. Every year, guys blow up this week at at the Combine, and they get drafted in the first round because they are exceptional athletes among an entire league of exceptional athletes. And then they flame out because they're not actually any good at football. But that decision, that opportunity they got, happened because of the combine. Somebody talked themselves into that player because of the combine. And on the flip side, guys are making a lot of money based on what they do at the combine. You run a 4-2-7 in the 40-yard dash, that number sticks with you for the rest of your career. Even if by 28 you're running a 4-4 or 4-5 or 4-6, the fact that you ran a 427 on one day in February in Indianapolis is going to be with you for the rest of your life. And that's good for you. You want that. You can make a lot of money based on what happens this week in Indianapolis. So for that plain fact, we can't ignore the combine. On top of that, number three, not everything that happens at the combine is even bad. I think there's this propensity to overreact to stuff. I guess we all do it. That's how the media works now, right? We overreact to everything. 
including myself in the media, you know, I guess could be an overreaction too, giving myself more credit than I deserve. Um, but I think there's this propensity to say that the combine is just this ridiculous underwear Olympic spectacle and you should just ignore everything. But I think even beyond the fact that you have to pay attention to the combine because it does affect decision-making, I think there is some value in some of the stuff that goes on at the combine. Sure, the testing may not necessarily reflect stuff that actually happens on a football field, but I think getting baseline testing on guys in similar conditions is a good thing. There can be a lot of variance in pro days, how they're conducted, how the results are reported, how those results are calculated, the results or the conditions under which those results are produced. Those can vary a lot. Just getting these numbers, everybody running on the same track, everybody lifting the same weights, everybody getting their vertical leap and broad jump tested by the same guys, there is some value to that. The same thing kind of goes for interviews too, when you do them well. Look, job interviews are going to be job interviews. And there is a, a fair amount of debate as to whether or not job interviews are actually a good way to make good hiring decisions. But sitting down and talking with someone and tracking who people are sitting down and talking with is a good way to gather information, is a way to gather information. Having information is a good thing. And if you have a process that allows you to get good information, there is some value in that. Again, Maybe not a lot of value, and you shouldn't overrate the value that you're getting out of this process, but there is some value there too. And then finally, I think it's important to remember that the combine is in a way sort of a basic IQ test. People know for months that this thing is going to happen at this time and in this place. Being ready for that event that is going to happen at a set time and place that you knew was coming is kind of a basic thumbs-up, thumbs-down indicator on who you should pay attention to. If a guy shows up to the combine out of shape, that should be a pretty big red flag. Unless he's got some injury that he's dealing with, that should be a red flag. If a guy is considered coming into his senior year or final year in college, a surefire can't-miss combine prospect, surefire can't-miss NFL prospect, and he can't show up in shape and on time to the NFL Combine, that should be a problem. The same goes for the basic drills and stuff like that. A lot of these guys who have agents, and they should, get their Combine training paid for at high-end training facilities. There's no excuse for not being ready for this. And yet every year, there's a guy who shows up and just can't quite execute on game day, quote-unquote game day. That should be a red flag. Again, all of these things are relatively small value propositions, but you start adding up a few of them, you start to see quite a bit of value in the combine. So since we can't ignore this, and since there is some value here, I think, thought number four, we should use the combine as a part of our process for evaluating the players that are coming up in the NFL draft. It shouldn't be the whole thing. It should probably be just one of three things. The combine, their college production, and then their film. We can use the combine when we have the right perspective on the combine. That's what we've talked about so far, right? Understanding that it's silly, but understanding that people make decisions based on this silly thing and understanding that even if it is silly, there is some value here too. It's flawed, 
But knowing that you can't ignore it, you can look past some of those flaws or at least extract some value around those flaws. Second, we can use combine stuff to explain or add context to a player's college production and vice versa. Not all college production is created equal. You know, some guy putting up big numbers against SEC competition is inherently going to be more valuable than a guy doing the same thing against Division II schools, 1AA schools, sorry, FBS schools. And we're going to talk more about what stats and things are worth your time and how to sort through some of that stuff. But at the very least, you can use the stuff that gets pulled together at the Combine as a way through some parts of that noisy situation. You can figure out what college production you should be interested in based on what a guy does at the Combine. Then finally, we can use film evaluators or identify film evaluators and other scouts who write in the openly available media who are reputable, who will help us build a list of players we should be interested in. So you add in the combine, you add in college production and stats that matter to these scouting reports written by guys who are, you know, shown to be reputable or at least broadly considered to be fairly reputable. Then you start getting a pretty decent picture. If nothing else, looking at these scouts, looking at these writers can be like just piling up more raw data. Dane Brugler says this about this player. Todd McShay says this about this guy. You throw their perspectives into the mix And that's never a bad thing as long as you acknowledge that their hit rates are probably not any better than NFL scouts, which aren't that great to begin with, and acknowledge that their analysis is, again, like the rest of us, all part of a puzzle. So finally, I think using this three-headed approach to the combine and the draft in general is probably the best way I've found to develop worthwhile takes about players and about the draft in general. Get a little film, get a little combine, get a little analytics. That is probably just a guess from there. But you know what? The only difference between that and the pros is the amount of time you're putting into those three buckets and the stakes of your guesses. That's all. That's all the scouts are doing. They're watching film, they're going to the combine, they're looking at the numbers too. We can do those same things, only we're not going to get fired if we guess wrong. Because I'll be able to keep podcasting forever, no matter how bad my NFL draft takes are. And believe me, they're not going to be good. So let's sort through that process together as we go through the combine and as we start parsing the results of the combine heading into uh, the weeks leading up to the draft. Sound good? Good. I was lucky enough late last week to spend some time talking with former Packers wide receiver Don Beebe. He was a member of the Packers Super Bowl 31 squad a longtime NFL player and one of the fastest in NFL history. You may recognize him from his time with the Buffalo Bills, chasing down Leon Lett in the Super Bowl. You may remember him throwing a block for Desmond Howard in the Super Bowl. The Packers won over the New England Patriots. He, again, was kind enough to sit down and spend a little bit of time with me on the phone, and I was happy enough to share that conversation with you. Here is that conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Blue 58! So I want to start kind of with your with your college career, uh, your recruiting journey, and a, and I want to see if this is a true story or not. Includes uh-huh. an anecdote about you running a forty yard dash barefoot in jeans and catching somebody's attention that way. Is that a true story? Well, not the jean part, but um, it was cutoff jeans, so I was in shorts actually. But it was what happened was um, I always tell people I was recognized by the NFL before I ever played a down of college ball. 
And the reason is, is when I first went to college, I actually left before the season started. I sat out of school for three years working construction. Decided I was going to go back and play college football uh, only with two years of eligibility left, which I didn't know that was being chewed up. But um, And then when I went back, I had to go uh, in the spring semester. Um, and in that spring semester, they were having a pro day at uh, Western Illinois, which I wasn't even invited to. I was actually in math class. And I just happened to walk into the gym after the math class. So I was in a tank top, sandals, and jean shorts and walked up, found out what was going on, asked if I could participate. Initially, they said no. And then uh, I pleaded with my coach, I'd love to be able to run. That'd be great. And so we asked the Dallas scout, and the, kid, the Dallas scout said, yeah, let kid run. Who cares? You know? So uh, without warming up, I didn't have time to go back to my dorm and get my running shoes. I kicked off my sandals and jean shorts without warming up and ran a four three two forty. And that speed will translate just about anywhere you go, I think. And uh, you ended up in the NFL, a third round pick to the Buffalo Bills. Uh, bringing that kind of speed to the field has to has to feel pretty good. But with, was there a moment when you thought, "Wow, this is this is a little bit different than playing college football"? <laughs> yeah, the first time I ever put on a helmet, uh, May of nineteen eighty nine. It was mini camp, and I go out there, and you know, I was, you know, that year they didn't have a first, or second round pick, so I was the first pick in the third round, and so you're, you know, when you come into camp, you're all eyes are on you, you know, and literally, first time I ever faced bump and run was against a guy by the name of Nate Odoms, who was all pro at that time with the Buffalo Bills cornerback, and he jammed me so good, I, I slipped on turf, and he pushed me in my back, and he called me rookie and a few other things, and you know, it was just. And he was just messing around with me, but, man, was I embarrassed. You know, uh, I knew then. I said, okay, this is different. <laughs> so you start from, from getting embarrassed, I guess, in your first rep in your first mini camp, to playing a, a long time in the NFL. When when did you realize, hey, this is something I can do, I can compete at this level? Well, the, the first time I got to play in a game, so it was, uh, I didn't get to play in the first game in 1989 of my rookie year. I didn't get to play the second game. Uh, because this was before the K-Gun no-huddle offense when we were going three wide-out sets. So this was basically during the days of two receivers and the third receiver comes in on third downs. Well, I was the fourth receiver on the depth chart, so I didn't get to play in the first two games. And, and Jim Kelly went into Marv Levy on, uh, after the second game and says, you know, listen, we didn't draft Bebe to stand on the sideline. I want, I want him on the field. So lo and behold, that third game, I get, I'm the third receiver. They cut Chris Burkett. I moved into the third receiver slot, and I got to play on third downs. So the first pass, first time I'm in the huddle, it's a run call, and, and then the second time I'm in the huddle, um, I'm going up against Chris Dishman, who landed up playing a long career in the NFL. And before I broke the huddle, Jim says, BB, if he's pressed on you, go deep. I'm throwing it to you. <laughs> I was like, oh, boy, here we go. And... Uh, and it all worked out. I beat Chris Dishman for a 63-yard bomb, and um, and it's and it was just an unbelievable way to break in. Your first pass to ever go your way is a long touchdown. I mean, that's I'm not sure how many's ever done that before, but it was a heck of a way. And then I think at that time I kind of felt like, okay, I, you know, maybe I can play at this level. You played in Buffalo for six years. You guys had obviously a lot of success there. You didn't 
collect any Super Bowls, but you played in a few. But then at 30, you end up in Carolina, an expansion team. What was that like? How, how big a culture change was that? Well, it was, first of all, I loved Charlotte. I loved the people of Charlotte. I loved Dom Capers, I think, who's a great man of character and a great coach and have a lot of respect for Dom Capers, who that, that was, you know, obviously the head coach of the expansion team. Um, you know, other than that, it was, it was really different, uh, you know, coming from Buffalo and, you know, being a starter and being the guy and with, with Andre and James Lofton and, and the run that we had and then going to Carolina and the, and the, you know, the wideout coach and the offensive coordinator there, you know, I, I just didn't feel comfortable with them and I didn't really fit into their, to their system. Um, which is fine. I mean, it's professional sports, and that's the way it's going to go. So it was just—it was a rough year for me. It was a growing year, in a lot of ways. Um, but I was—I was really fortunate and blessed to—to to, you know get out of there after one year and go to the Green Bay Packers. What was the process of getting to Green Bay like? How did you end up there? Was that that a destination that was in your mind? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the year before. Before I went to Carolina, I wanted to go to Green Bay that year, but it didn't work out. Um, and then, uh, and then the next year, we contacted him again and said, you know, we'd literally like to come to Green Bay. I mean, I kind of felt like that was a team that was going to, you know, go to Super Bowl and win one. Um, I had it was just a feeling I had, and uh, after losing four with Buffalo, I just wanted to experience what it was like to to win one and being a free agent. I mean, let's, let's try to go pick the one that I thought was going to be it. And that was green Bay. And lo and behold, that year we, we landed up pulling it off. So it was, it was great for all of us. Uh, I had a great year with the pack and, and the team was just an unbelievable experience. You did have a couple great moments there with the Packers in 1996. And I, I want to ask you about a couple of those, but first I wanted to, to ask about the, the man in charge, at least as far as what, what went on on the field, Mike Holmgren, what was he like as a coach? Uh, he was, uh, I mean, it was, it was a little bit different than coaches that I've had. Um, you know, Marvin, Marv Levy and, and Coach Holmgren were, you know, two different styles of coaching. Mike, Mike Holmgren was hands-on, um, you know, a motivator in a different way, let's say. Um, and, uh, but one thing I, one thing about Mike is, you know, me being a head coach now, uh, I learned a lot from both my coaches at, at the NFL level, but I, I learned a lot of the X's and O's and drawing up plays and how to develop a quarterback. And, you know, cause I got to see him coach Brett, you know, in those early years of Brett really. And, uh, and I've always said this, I don't think we would know Brett Favre like we do today if it wasn't for Mike Holmgren. And so Mike was a very intelligent offensive mind. There's no question about that. Um, and his, I mean, what he did in the red zone was really second to anybody. Um, obviously, he was tutelaged under the, one of the great minds of Bill Walsh, too. But, you know, that tree under Mike, you know, went to Andy Reid, and now, you know, it's just all over, you know. So I was fortunate to play for two tremendous, you know, quarterbacks and two tremendous head coaches. So um, I learned a lot from, from Mike from an offensive standpoint. I'm curious, you mentioned the red zone there. What was it about his red zone approach that sticks out to you? Well, he attacked it. I mean, he just, he wasn't like, you know, I grew up a Bear fan. And, and you know, and the Bears are the old Bears, and they still kind of that way. And a lot of NFL teams are this way as well. 
you know, they, they would just run first, second down, maybe third down. They might throw, but they were settling for three. Mike never settled for three. He never wanted to leave it up to the kicker. He felt like he was going to take three shots at the end zone once he got in there. And that was just his style, and it was aggressive. And, um, and boy, I, I love that style. I really do. Um, so I, I've developed that same style as a coach, and, and it works pretty well. And so I just thank Coach Holmgren for that. So 1996, your first year with the Packers, might be, depending on how you want to count, the most productive of your career in the NFL, including, I think, the best single yardage output of of your career, 220 yards against the 49ers on Monday Night Football. But uh, there was one play, and I think it even shows up on the Packers season highlight tape from that year, where you make kind of a diving, sliding catch. It looks like you might be touched down, but you get up and run anyway, and, and they don't call it back. i got to ask, were you touched down on that play? Well, during the time of the game, I did not feel anything. Uh, you know, a game, it happens so fast in a game, you don't, you don't realize and you don't feel certain things that goes on. I just reacted. You know, I went down, and by NFL rules, I can get back up. I didn't feel anybody tackle me or touch me, um, and I didn't hear any whistle. You know, so I just got up and did what I was supposed to do, and and after I watched the film, um, it certainly looks like, you know, I got touched. But um, hey, I you know I'm just gonna I'm just gonna do what I'm allowed to do, and and um, you know, but but during the course of the whole action, I I never thought anything of him touching me at all. Absolutely, still counts in the box score. It, it doesn't matter what they say now. You you scored the touchdown. Yep. Um, yeah, that's true. In in Super Bowl thirty one, obviously one of the big plays of that game is Desmond Howard's kick return for a touchdown. Yeah. But he credits you to this day with a key block on that play. Uh, what do you remember about that play? I remember Desmond coming over and taking a ball from me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just messing with it. Uh, no, it was you know. Hey, look, Desmond is one of the greatest return guys ever. You know, I mean, this you could argue he's top top five top ten of all time you know up there with Devin Hester and Mel Gray and all the great returners and you know and that year was a special year too I don't think we would have been able to get as far as we did without some of the plays that Des made incredible plays from punt returning um, to kick returning he was actually a better punt returner and I think he'd probably tell you the same um, but you know being an MVP of a of a Super Bowl as a special teams guy that that's pretty special. Um, you know, I was just doing my job. I mean, I just leading him up in the hole, and and I got the guy that, you know, was kind of the last guy that was going to be able to get him. Um, but there was other key blocks as well. So um, it was well blocked and well well thought out plan by the staff, and Desmond just hit it up in there, and rest is history. I think a lot of people might forget that in that same season, although Desmond Howard gets a lot of the – the accolades, and I guess rightly so, he had a great year. You also had a kickoff return for a touchdown that year, the only one of your career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't get to do much kick returning at Buffalo. I mean, it was a little bit. Um, you know, everybody says I was a special teams guy, but they, they screwed me up with Steve Tasker. <laughs> Steve <laughs> Tasker is the best ever. Uh, should be in the Hall of Fame. Hopefully hopefully one day he is. But uh, I did a little bit in Buffalo, and, and when I got to Green Bay in '96. I was the main kick returner for most of that year, and then I loved it, and it was going great. And then uh, um, Robert Brooks goes down with a 
ACL out for the year. Antonio Freeman broke his arm. They took me off kick return, and that's when they put Desmond back there. Um, you know, because they just couldn't afford to lose any more wide receivers. Uh, and then uh, Robert Brooks never did come back, but Antonio did. But you know, they just stuck with. Then they just put both me and Des back there. After that, so after your playing days have ended, and and we're uh, we're getting to be, I guess. Uh, a few years past that now you've you've done a lot of different kinds of coaching you've done speed coaching you've done high school football now you're doing college football stuff mm-hmm. what have you learned i guess about the game that you didn't realize as a as a player now that you've had to approach it as a coach well i mean i think i think what i one thing i mean there's a lot of things but one thing that stands out to me is i i remember what it was like as a player and i don't ever want to forget it the way I was treated, good or bad, uh, by coaches. And I never wanted to do the bad to players that I'm around, and I wanted to teach them and coach them by the good that I've had by the coaches that I had. So um, I I just want the guys that I coach to enjoy the experience, be it in high school or collegiately now. uh, I want them to go through, you know, four years in college level and, and enjoy every aspect of it. So... I try to make it as fun as I can and yet competitive and, uh, you know, and obviously winning is a whole lot funner than losing and everybody would agree to that. Uh, but there's more than just winning. I mean, creating, cause you could still win and, and the guys are not having a great time. Um, and you could even lose and still guys would have, you know, a good time. Um, it's just easier winning, but I just, that's how I, taken the approach I've, I, I've learned a lot from great coaches ahead of me I probably have taken the most from coach Levy um, and my high school coach coach Thorgensen of just creating an atmosphere that's fun enjoyable you enjoy going to practice it's not a grind um, and I've and I've uh, hopefully doing that as, as well as I can and as good as those guys did do the players you have today ever challenge you to a race <laughs> uh, let's just put it this way. I, the last time I was challenged, well, I'm 55 now, so I was 41 years old. I was doing a speed camp, and this kid runs a 44140, um, and we timed him. Dr. Shoot, my partner in House of Speed, timed him. And he starts talking trash, and he got the whole camp talking about 100 kids, you know. And and I was just standing there going, kid, do I really want to race this kid, <laughs> you know? And so I, I couldn't take it anymore. So I said, okay, let's go, kid. So that the last time I ran, I, I raced this kid. I ran a 4.38 and barely beat this kid. And I told uh, my partner, actually, I said, I'll never do that again. So that is the last time I've ever ran. Is there, I have no idea what I could run now, and nor do I want to try. I, there is no temptation at all? Not at all. <laughs> well, let me, let me just say this, John. Um, my son, who plays with the Minnesota Vikings, it was three years ago. I was train. I trained. I've been training him since he was five years old. You know, and just and I was just messing around one day with him uh, three years ago, and I said, "Okay, buddy, let let's go." You know, and he said, "Dad," he looks at me because he's a humble kid. He goes, "Dad, you sure, man? You sure you want to race me?" I said, "You know what? I just got to see what it feels like at fifty-two years old." So we get on the line, and I said, "On one condition, I get to say go." <laughs> he goes, no problem. And I literally took off for about 10 yards, and he went by me because I got to step on him because I said go, and he went by me like I was standing still, and I just jogged from 10 yards on, and I said, okay, 
my mind says yes, but my body says no way. That was the end of that. Well, hey, I'm I'm 31, and my body is saying no, and and uh, I I don't have any any sort of excuse at this point. So uh, I think that even gave it a shot at 52 is is commendable. Well, I, uh, I at least I can say I tried. Uh, and thank goodness it was just me and him out in that field, so I didn't embarrass myself at all. Don Beebe is fast as a player. He's great as a coach, and he joined us here for a podcast interview today. Thank you so much, Don. Yeah, you bet. Thanks, John. Blue 57! Big thanks again to Don Beebe for joining us on the show today. I really appreciate him taking the time. It was an interesting and fun experience to interview him, and I hope you enjoyed that as well. That is something we are looking to do more of in 2020 and beyond, talking with with players and and former players and current players or whatever uh, to help us add a little bit more understanding about the game. And I I really liked what he had to say about Mike Holmgren in there. I thought that was particularly interesting. If there are people you would like to hear from on the show, let us know. We will do our best to get in touch with them. If you have a connection that could help us make that happen, let me know. I would love to hear from you. So I've got for you on this show. Thank you so much for listening. I do appreciate it. If you like what you heard today, hey, do us a favor, share it with a friend. Uh, Help us grow the audience of Blue 58 because that's going to help us further our mission of helping everybody become smarter Packers fans. Because as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We will see you next time on Blue 58.